If you did not already notice, I am not Michael Cat. Um, so praise the Lord, Michael is doing much, much better than what he was earlier this morning. So praise God for that. But he contacted me to let me know that he was still not in a position to be able to preach tonight, and he is sorry about not being able to be with us, but we want to continue to pray for his speedy recovery, and at the same time, uh, just know that we are already in the works as far as making sure there's a time to reschedule he as well as Terry coming back. So we want to make sure that we do not miss what it is that God has to say through Michael, and uh, also just the opportunity to be able to all be back together again as a church family. Now, today I have been reminded in multiple ways of a statement that God has brought me back to many times over the years, and that is, nothing is wasted with God. Today is not an accident. Before this morning began, before our eyes opened, God knew exactly what was going to happen in these services. God knew Ken was preaching. Ken didn't know that Ken was preaching. <laughs> Ken, yeah, Ken's like, I had no idea about that. God brought a word through you this morning, man. It was the word that this church needed this morning. Praise the Lord. As I was over here singing and worshiping, all of a sudden it hit me, we're in another moment right now. The message I'm about to give, you just sang it. Now here's what's going to happen. We're going to find out if you were lying when you were singing it. Sometimes it's easy to sing the words. It's a lot harder sometimes to go through and to live those words. So when I say nothing is wasted, let me give an example because I feel like it helps frame out a little bit of what Michael's walking through right now. Uh, I guess it was back in 2019. I was on a plane from Las Vegas going into L.A., L.A. going into Sydney, Australia. I was supposed to preach at a Keswick convention, about a thousand or so people in attendance, over a hundred churches represented. They had been watching messages I was teaching out of the Gospel of John, and they asked if I would come and teach an entire chapter out of the Gospel of John and about eight messages over the course of this week. So I'm on a plane heading from Vegas into LA and going down the tarmac there was rumbling and something shifted in the bottom of my back and I had to hold myself up from the flight going from Vegas to LA, get on an emergency flight and come around and come back to Vegas, spent the next two years, two and a half years in physical therapy on some injuries that had happened in my back. I was overwhelmed. I didn't know, how, how do you tell an entire conference where there's multiple times you're speaking in another country, people showing up, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it there. I contacted the people running the, the convention, and I shared the situation, and I said, here's a possible solution as to what we might be able to do. Since you all were watching those messages online, maybe you can show the messages in those time slots I'll be available to do Zoom calls back and forth. They wanted to do Q&A time. I said, let's just see what we can do. Let's, let's see what God is going to do. God did a wonderful thing during that particular week. And just last week, I got this email from the group. Here's what it said. This October will be our first live convention since you preached October 2019. 
As it turns out, when your back gave out and we needed to do things electronically, this set in motion a string of changes in the way we handled recordings and gave us a glimpse of how we would need to run the conventions 2020 and 2021. It helped us prepare not just for our conventions, but also for our own churches to minister to their congregations while in complete lockdown. Praise God, he knew what lay ahead of all of us. Nothing is wasted with God. Tonight, we're reminded of that again. My plan in this evening was I was going to be sitting off to the side and I was going to be cheering Michael along. But over the last couple of weeks, I've been preparing for a message that I'm going to be preaching in America in a couple of weeks. I was asked to preach on revival and what revival is about. And as I'm over here singing those songs, I'm like, you all are giving away all the answers right now. So what is revival? I, I went on online, I typed in what is revival into Google because that's where all good theology is derived. And I received 104 million results in 0.32 seconds. So first, kudos on uh, having a very efficient search engine. And then also, that's a lot of information. There were over 7 million videos alone. And I wanted to go on and just see when people put that in in a search engine, what are they going to find? And I started watching some of those videos, and I got scared watching some of those videos. It had pastors coming up and hitting people in the head and dropping them out on the ground. And it had people falling out in the aisles and chaos in churches. And then I got into a whole section of snake handling. And I was like, whoa, okay, I'm in the wrong section right there. So anyway, as I looked over those results, my thought was, think of how many times you hear a Christian say, God, send revival here. And then I watch those videos, and I'm thinking, if that's it, Lord, maybe you can send that somewhere else. I don't know if I'm up for that. When you have to bring anti-venom to church just in case, <laughs> I might be in the wrong church. So what is true revival? And this is a topic that has been addressed so many times in this church. Revival, awakening, prayer, God dependence. What is true revival? Well, let me just say it's important from the very beginning to, to recognize the word revival is not found in Scripture. But the concept of revival is found throughout Scripture. So here's just a few of those references. You can write them off to the side. Uh, this is old school note-taking tonight. Whatever you happen to have when you walked in is pretty much what you have. So Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Here's the word, restoring the soul. Psalm 51, 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 57, verse 15, I dwell in the high and holy place to revive the lowly, our spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. In Psalm 51:12, it says, Restore to me the joy 
of your salvation. If you go into the book of Acts chapter 3, it speaks of times of refreshing coming in the presence of the Lord. So while the Bible does not specifically mention the word revival, it is very clear that it talks about God restoring the soul and renewing the spirit and reviving the heart and refreshing the person. Now here's the big question. If Christians are new creations in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. We have been bought with a price. We are rightly related to the creator of this universe. If we have everything the gospel tells us that we have, why would any Christian need revival? What happens along the way? Here's as simple as I can try to make it. Life has a way of taking our focus off God and placing it on other things. It's nothing that's intentional that happens, I don't think. It's not that people say, God is not important in my life anymore. I'm going to do other things. But rather, you'll find that people are living life. They're raising families. They're going to work. They're paying bills. They're going back and forth to ball practice and dance recital. And they're doing homework. And, and they're busy. And if they have a little bit of time left in the evening, they might watch a favorite program or watch a sport of some kind. And they, they live busy lives. And it's not necessarily that any of those things are bad. But listen, listen. Busyness replaces intimacy. The temporal suppresses the eternal. Good robs us of the best. And believe it or not, that's the positive side of distraction. There's also a negative side of distraction. As things take our focus, sin diverts our affection. Sometimes it starts out small. Sometimes it's cracks in character. Sometimes it's questionable decisions. Sometimes it's a situation where we justify the very things that we used to reject. That over a period of time, it's almost like the spiritual air is being let out of the tires, so to speak. And we find ourselves accepting things and complying with things and doing things that maybe at another point in our spiritual walk, we would have never have dreamed that we would have been involved in. We increasingly find ourselves callous to the things of God and yet oddly alive to the things of this world. But God has a way of getting our attention, doesn't he? There's something that happens in moments. Maybe you're in a worship service. Maybe you're in a text of scripture and all of a sudden it's like God gives you a glimpse of what it used to look like. He, he reminds you through a conversation. Sometimes it's by watching a young believer and you see their fire and you see their passion and you see their heart and there's something inside of you that says, what happened to that for you? Where's that same thing gone? It's almost like breadcrumbs of awakening that God uses in order to show us sometimes that we're simply going through the motions spiritually. When David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Do you know sometimes that is exactly what we need God to do? We need God to take us back to exactly what it looked like when we just met him. 
We need God to take us back many times to show us what life was like then. I don't know if, if your story's the same as mine, but I've heard somebody say before that those who have been forgiven of much are grateful for much. I remember when I got saved, you couldn't keep me out of church. If there wasn't a service going on at my church, I found another church to go to. I wasn't smart enough to know there was differences in denominations. I just saw they got a meeting going on. I'm going to show up over there. By the way, that's a very interesting way to become familiar with other churches. When I got saved, I couldn't sing the song Amazing Grace without tears coming my eyes. I couldn't work my way through how great thou art without being overwhelmed with what God did for me. I I remember vividly what those moments were like. I, I remember when the pastor would begin to preach, I didn't just show up thinking, well, if you got a word, I'll try, to, I'll, I'll try to walk home with something. I showed up with my Bible and my notepad and my pen and my paper, and I was ready. I was like, whatever you got, let's go with it, because I wanted God to work in my heart. I wanted to experience him. I wanted to feel his presence. I wanted to know him deeply. I, I wanted all of those things. But listen. When our eyes come off of our first love, we will find that we lose the joy for the journey. We lose that passion, that fire, that excitement. Worship, it it no longer moves us. How How do you know when worship no longer moves you? You're looking at your watch thinking, when's this gonna be over? The word The Word, do you remember those times in the Word when every time you would go in, it's like you would either walk away with tears in your eyes or you would walk away convicted of sin or you'd walk away encouraged like God just read your story and he wrote it out in the Word. Like those moments when you can't wait to get back into the presence of God. When your eyes come off of Jesus as your first love, you just start reading a chapter and you check it off your list and say, At least I've done that. Didn't even have to do that. There's a shift that happens. So the question becomes, how do you go back? How do you get back to that place where the fire is there and the passion is there and the heart is there? I want us to explore that tonight. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles this evening to the book of Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2. We're going to be this evening in verses 4 and 5, and I'm speaking on the subject of just what is revival. Here's what the text says. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get into this text, 
God, this is a subject that hits all of us as followers of Christ in a different way. Lord, there's so much of your activity that we've been seeing in recent weeks, and Lord, we are so grateful for that. And Lord, you're working in individual hearts and minds, and Lord, we are grateful for that. God, we're not asking for you to recreate some particular moment, Lord. We are, we're asking that you would allow us to experience you fresh and new, that the Spirit of God would weigh heavy in this place, that those burdens that people walk in with, Lord, they're, they're released, and it's, it's not even a challenge to release them because what you're offering is so much greater than anything that we might desire in that moment apart from you. Lord, we're praying that you would do what only you can do in this place, and God will thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we answer our main question of the night, and that is, what is revival? I want to answer another important question as well. What is the essence of revival? Now, I am not referring to the concept of revival. That's the idea. I'm also not talking about the effects of revival. That is the outcome. I'm also not talking about the forerunners of revival. Those are the prerequisites. I'm talking about what is the essence of revival. That, that is, how do we distinguish the essence, what it does, how it works, uh, when it happens, any of those different types of things. Now, all of this is absolutely important if we are to understand revival, not only on a personal level, but also on a corporate level. So here's a number of definitions from some well-known Christian writers, pastors, leaders over the course of the last couple hundred years. Uh, the first one is from J.I. Packer. He, he gave this point. Revival is God's quickening visitation of his people, touching their hearts and deepening his work of grace in their lives. Stephen Olford, a great expository preacher, he said, revival is the sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. J. Edwin Orr said, Revival is times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. Robert Coleman said, Revival is the awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. Duncan Campbell said, and this is the last of those, Revival is a community saturated with God. Now, each of these different writers, they, they came at the concept of revival from a different angle. Some gave specific details. Others, it was more generalized. Some is specific to the individual. Others, it's more specific to a group, a church, a, a movement, so to speak. But I want us to go back for just a moment and look at what it says again in verses 4 and 5, I want us to see how that text describes revival. Here's what it says. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. 
Now again, this, this word revival, it is not found in this text or in another text in the Bible, but revival is a word that we use to describe God's restorative, refreshing, renewing work that is happening in the hearts of his people. Uh, the text that we're studying tonight is one part of a much bigger text. It goes from chapters 2 and 3. It's describing the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. And in this particular section, it's addressing the church at Ephesus. And man, when you look at the preceding verses, the church of Ephesus had a lot of great stuff going on. Listen, listen to what Christ has already commended this church about. He commended them for their deeds. They were actually working things out. They, they were doing the right things. He commended them for their toil. They weren't lazy. He commended them for their perseverance. They kept on regardless of the struggles. He commended them for their abhorrence of evil, for their rejection of false teachers, and for their endurance for Christ's sake. That's a lot of good stuff going on in the church. Amen? I'm going to tell you, if you could find 50 churches like that right now, I'd say they're going to set the world on fire. That's an incredible description of a church that's doing so many things well. But then he says, but I have this against you. You left your first love. Let those words sink in for a moment. It's hard when anyone we respect says, I've got something against you. But when your Savior says, I got this against you, you left your first love. In other words, the work is great, but somehow you forgot who you were working for. Your doctrinal correctness is, is great, but doctrinal correctness cannot make up for relational deficiency. You left your first love. When you look at this text, it is an incredible indictment against this church. But he didn't leave them there. He tells them what to do next. Praise God, he tells us what to do next. It's verse number five. He says, therefore, remember, go back in your mind from where you have fallen and repent. Uh, agree with God. Turn towards the right attitude and the right actions and do the deeds you did at first. Do the things you originally were doing. Do what it looked like when you first met me. Like, go back to those things. I want you to hold that thought for just a moment. There is a concept in counseling that's usually given when working with married couples who are going through relational problems. And here's the concept. What it takes to catch them is what it takes to keep them. In other words, if you courted your spouse, if you gave words of affirmation, if you had great conversation, if you did things for each other, if you respected each other, if you did all of those things, what it takes to catch them is what it takes to keep them. You keep doing those things. Take that idea and bridge it into a spiritual parallel. Look back at what happened when you entered relationship with Jesus Christ. Look back at what he did for you. 
The, the flames of revival, they begin to stir in a person's heart when they go back and they remember where God found them and what God did for them and how God saved them. And, and they go back and they start to do the things they did at first. What did you do at first? You, you went and took time in the Word because you wanted to get to know God more. You, you took time in prayer because you wanted to share your heart with Him and to get to know Him more. You, you were in church. You were active. You were moving forth. All of those things happened at first. Remember, he didn't call us to a religious arrangement. He called us to an intimate relationship. And when we forsake the relationship, the issue is that we forsake our first love. Go back to the place where we started. You know one of the things that happens in the place that you start when it comes to God, we started in submission and dependence upon him. Have you noticed that the more you know about God, sometimes the easier it becomes to get less and less dependent? It's almost like, God, I know that. I can finish this from here. God never removes us from a position of dependence. We were dependent for salvation, we are dependent for sanctification. We were dependent to know God. We are dependent to keep on knowing him in deeper and deeper levels. There are four words that stand out in this particular section, Revelation 2, that describes this turning around process. The words are recognize, remember, repent, return. Recognize, remember. Repent, return. What do I mean by those words? It, recognize the state of your spiritual life. If you've left your first love, recognize it. it don't try to justify it. Don't try to explain, well, here's how I got here. If you've left your first love, the first part is to say, God, I recognize the same as you're talking to the church in Ephesus. That's describing me. I recognize that somewhere along the way, my passionate pursuit of you has fallen away and there's other things somehow that I've been chasing. The next is remember from where you've fallen. Look back at the difference between the initial moments of salvation and where things are today. Uh, where is that joy that was once there? The passion, the fervor, the, the dedication, the discipline. What happened to those things? Remember what it was like. Then repent. Repent of spiritual apathy, of selfish living, of sinful choices. Uh, repentance is an ongoing thing in the heart of the believer. Yes, there's that initial point of repentance when you repent of your sin by placing faith in Christ and you enter covenant relationship with God. Yes, that is how we enter the relationship. But all along the way, there's things that the Spirit of God is going to bring to mind, areas where our heart is wrong, our character is wrong, our attitude is wrong, our actions are wrong. And when God prompts us and says, this is not of me, do you know what he wants you to do? Stop doing it. You say, I don't know how. Dependence upon him. You go back to the same place you started. But here's what happens. We say, I'll worry about that when I have more time. Every time you delay obedience, 
That's called disobedience. And we're asking God, bless me. Bless the church. Bless what's going on. When believer after believer is walking in a state of unrepentance, knowing that there's things that God has said, I want you to address this. I want you to leave this. I want you to forsake this. And we just keep saying, I'll get around to that when things slow down. Busyness interferes with intimacy with God. We leave our first love. So based on this text, I'm going to give another definition of revival. Revival is the intersection of an awakened soul, a repentant heart, and a restored passion for intimacy with Christ. If you're wondering from Scripture, is there a definition that we could work with? Revival is at the intersection of these things. It's an awakened soul, a repentant heart, a restored passion for intimacy with God. When those three things collide together, that person is on a path of God refueling and restoring and refreshing and reviving their hearts. What a blessing for us to be able to look and see there is a path that God gives us to go back into be restored to the joy of our salvation. Now, all of that makes sense on a personal level. But how does that impact revival maybe on a church level or a city level or in a country or a movement that spans multiple countries? How does that definition of revival come back? That's like the million-dollar question that people have been asking for years. This last week, we saw something incredibly unique in the services here. Nine professions of faith and 56 people baptized on the same Sunday. That was a special moment, a memorable moment. And in my heart, here's the first thing that my, my mind, this is my logistical mind. I'm like, what did we do different today that we can continue to do to keep that happening? And it was almost instantly God brought me back to the Mount of Transfiguration. When he's standing there and Peter immediately seeing this moment, it was like, let's build altars, let's, let's start something, let's form a, something around this, and instantly it's gone. Here's the thing, you can't predict the movements of God. It's a part of his mystery. But you know what? It's also a part of the joy that we have because if it happened over and over and over again, we get used to it. The same way you get used to your favorite TV program, same way you get used to business as usual, you get used to the activity of God. And he is so relational and he is so powerful and he's so creative that he doesn't need to recreate the same thing over and over again. He just says, just keep following me. I got something new. I got something better. Our, our heart is not God. Help us see that same thing again. My prayer is right now, God, what's the next piece that you have for us? May we chase you with all of our heart and our mind so that we see that. Here's the reason that this is such a disturbing thing for me sometimes. History shows us 
Christians will chase an experience with or without God in it. Be careful about chasing an experience. Be careful about immediately equating warm, fuzzy feelings with the presence of God. You can have emotional, secular feelings that give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. And if all you're looking for is a feeling, there's a lot of false teachers out who will give you all the feelings that you want. If all you're looking for is an activity, you're looking for a miracle, you're looking for something, the enemy is more than happy to entertain you in that way. Our thing has to be, God, we want you. We want you. And if that means it's in the quiet stillness of your voice, God, that's what we want at that moment. God, if that means you show up and save nine people and see 56 others baptized, then, Lord, we want that. If that means next week God comes through and turns our plans upside down again, we want that. By the way, I was reminded of what I prayed last week, this morning. I prayed and I said, God, if you want to disrupt our plans, that's okay. God was like, next week we'll find out if that's the same position you hold. As a guy who likes to schedule things, I get nervous when it comes to, Lord, we're just going to have to walk with you in this moment. But that's where faith is built. By the way, those are the stories you want to tell your kids and your great-grandkids about. You want to tell them about those moments that it was you and your Savior. The odds were against you, and yet in faith, God shows up in a miraculous way, in a way you could never imagine, and here's what he did. Like, you want those stories. We just don't like the circumstances that give us those stories. If you're looking for a little bit more excitement in a worship service, don't pray for revival. God might be giving you more excitement you can handle. If you're looking for a great Christian experience, maybe go on a mission trip, read a good book, don't pray for revival. Here's why I say that. Don't pray for revival if you're more enamored with the stories it generates than the Savior it elevates. Make sure that you're saying, God, we just want you. We want all of you. We want to meet with you. And Lord, if it looks like what's in our mind, then that's going to be really exciting. If it looks like something different, then Lord, that's going to be really exciting as well. So what are some myths about revival? Myth number one is revival is when people get saved. Salvation may be the result of God's reviving work in a church, but salvation is not revival. Here's what I mean by that. It is impossible to be revived if you've not first been vived. <laughs> Poor grammar, but pretty decent theology. Ephesians 2 tells us that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. So 
A spiritually dead person needs resurrection in Christ. A spiritually alive but distracted person, they need revival. Here's myth number two. Revival can be scheduled. Uh, I'm speaking on this more on a corporate level, a church-wide level. Uh, I, I recognize that there are certain pieces when it comes to us following what Scripture tells about submission before God and prayer before God and seeking God in faithfulness that God does incredible things when it comes to the individual. I'm talking about corporately. Like there are certain things you, you can't schedule like that. You, you can't say on this Sunday all of God's people are going to get right with him this week. So many times I've been asked to preach revival services or revival weeks and, and I always get a little I don't know, nervous around the terminology. I feel like maybe something that's better is that there's going to be a week of repentance messages. I mean, that's probably a little closer to it. It doesn't look nearly as good on the marquee. But sometimes it's almost like revival, April 5 through 10. That's almost like false advertising in some ways. Our part is we simply come before God and say, God, we need you. We want you. We submit before you. May our hearts be moved by what's moving your hearts. And Lord, if you choose to show up in a way that simply restores our hearts individually, God, we're good. Lord, if you choose to make that spark to the next person, the next person in this church, to that church. God, we're good. But Lord, you alone know what you desire in this. Here's myth number three. Revival does not hurt the church. True revival could be one of the most painful things a church ever goes through. When God begins to show you your true state, before a holy God? When God shows us how we have created sacred cows within our church culture that need to come down? When God shows us that we've been far more focused on things that don't matter than the things that are near to his heart? When God begins to burden our heart in a way of saying, you need to make it right with that person who offended you? When God begins to show areas of your heart that you don't want to see, it's painful. But it's the best thing that can happen. <laughs> Let me say it like this. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed, sometimes they'll do it in old movies or maybe sitcoms, but there's somebody who goes into one of those old school diners and they sit down at a counter and they order their meal. And they might order something like, I, I don't know, a BLT fries and a piece of apple pie. And the server turns around and yells the order back to the cook behind the counter and says something like, um, I need like one pig in a garden, grease sticks in the American dream. And the person's sitting there thinking like, how in the world did my order equate with what that person just said? Sometimes I wonder if God's not thinking the same thing on how we pray. Here's our prayer. God, send revival. God, deepen my prayer life. God, help me to be like you. 
And it's almost like in the ears of God, it's translated as, please allow three of my appliances to die this week. Would you create six months of drama within my family? Would you allow me to lose my job and give me a puppy? Because in, in our mind, when we want revival, we want God to send it in the stillness of our house, drinking a cup of coffee at the dining room table, Bible on our lap, and just enjoying that moment. But God doesn't work that way. When he begins to send revival, he sends it through the pains of life. He sends it through the problems. He sends it through those moments of dependence upon him. He sends it through the very set of circumstances that just blew up in front of you, revealing your character. And now he says, that's what's been holding you back. And you're like, God, I, that's not what I asked. I asked for revival. And he's like, and that's what I'm giving you. Revival hurts. But listen, so does walking at a guilty distance from God. So does living your life, as Steve McVeigh said, baking apple pies for God only one day to get to heaven and find out God doesn't like apple pie. Could you imagine the time, the opportunities that get wasted because believers are saying, I have enough Jesus right now in my life. Got him on Sunday. I'm saved. I'm going to go to heaven. But I don't want him to rock my boat and radically transform the way I live. Jesus took 12 ordinary people. One who turned out to betray him in a deep, deep way. 11 who were left and he turned the world upside down. When people really get it, the number of those who get it doesn't have to be a lot to see the transforming work of God happen. So my question becomes, what's holding us back? We've been watching God do some incredible things. What's the next piece that he wants to do? Let me finish by saying this. I, I was encouraged because I went back through and read from J.I. Packer and Jonathan Edwards. Both were asked to describe indicators preceding revival. Listen to J.I. Packer's list. Awareness of God's presence. Let me ask you, have you sensed God's presence in this place? responsiveness to God's word have people been responsive to God's word sensitivity to sin God begins to reveal the issues of the heart liveliness in community here's what he said a revived church is full of life and joy and the power of the Holy Spirit and then faithfulness in testimony it is an evangelistic and ethical overspill to the world. J.I. Packer said, those are indicators preceding revival.
Jonathan Edwards was asked to define what it looked like after experiencing some of the great revivals. And here's what his list was. There was an elevation of the teachings, person, and challenges of Jesus. There's an elevation and greater emphasis placed on Scripture. People will confront and attack sin and Satan. People are led into truth to a further degree. And listen to this. There is an increase in the believer's love for God and concern for the lost world. When I look through both of those lists, I'm like, God, I feel like we're right at the edge of something. I feel like there's so much that God desires to do in and through our lives. So here's how I want to conclude things tonight. I want to simply open it up for an invitation time and just say, respond as the Spirit of God is prompting you. I don't know what God's saying into your heart. It might be that you've gone through that list of four different words, the the process of recognize, remember, repent, and return. It, It might be that God has brought up something there in your heart. It might be that God has indicated this is something that's holding you back. I don't know what that looks like. But I do think the best thing we can do right now is just say, God, help us to see through your eyes. May we submit to whatever it is that your spirit is choosing to do. So I'm going to ask you if you would, if you would bow with me for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to ask if our pastors would just go find a place, the front of the different rows. The altar is going to be open in just a moment. But as we have a final song of invitation, I don't know if there's somebody in the room right now that they have yet to enter relationship with God and they need that. Or if there's people in the room right now that you recognize that you have moved away from your first love and that somehow the things of this world have become incredibly attractive and that there's a time in your life that you were walking in a closer proximity to Christ and you want that to to return. So whatever that might be, we're going to open up the invitation time. The altar will be open. There'll be a song of invitation that we sing. I just simply ask that you respond to God. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that, Lord, your spirit would have your way in this place. Lord, the, the way that this day has turned out is not the way that was scheduled. It wasn't planned, at least on our side. But, Lord, we recognize that you have been doing things that have been unplanned for a while. So, Lord, may we simply submit to what you're doing and be grateful for what you're doing. God, work in our hearts in a way that only you can. So, Lord, we'll thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing and the altar is open.